Coming up on this Big Gay Fiction Fest episode, we're going to find out who done it as we talk about cozy mysteries. Welcome to episode 387 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Will, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Jeff. Hello, Rainbow Romance Reader. We are so happy to have you here for the final Big Gay Fiction Fest panel discussion. We've got three authors with us who you would not want to be on the bad side of. If you were, they just might make you their next victim. We've got mystery authors Michael Kraft, Frank Anthony Polito, and S.C. Wynn. Part of what makes this panel so much fun is the range of experience between these authors. Michael's written mystery for 25 years, while S.C., who has written gay romance for a number of years, only started writing mystery four years ago. And then there's Frank, who has just released his first cozy mystery. Beyond talking about the genre overall, we're also going to get the details on each author's latest book. Michael, Frank, and SC, welcome to the Big Gay Fiction Fest. We're so excited to have you here talking to us about some mysteries. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start off by having you each introduce yourselves to our listeners and telling us a little bit about the types of mysteries that you're writing. And Michael, we'll come over to you first. Hmm. Well, uh, I have predominantly written uh, mysteries with a gay protagonist for well, a little over 25 years now. Um, they, they tend to be uh, amateur sleuth mysteries as opposed to cops or detectives. Um, I've done a, uh, a, a reporter. Um, I've done uh, an architect. Uh, <laughs> and, and right now I'm doing a concierge at a, a rental agency in Palm Springs, a short-term rental agency. Uh, for all of these people, solving crimes, let alone murder, is not their primary vocation. Uh, but it becomes something of an avocation because they're good at it and they have pure hearts and they are seekers <laughs> of justice. Um, I, I suppose because, uh, because I, I work with amateur sleuths, that generally you would call all of the mysteries I write cozies at some level. Uh, cozies tend to be defined as having uh, little or no violence and no sex. Um, I abhor violence, but all of my novels have sex to some degree in them. So I, I, guess, I guess one could say that I'm an author of erotic cozies or semi-erotic cozies. <laughs> Is that enough? Does that, does that give you the picture? <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. Essie, we'll come up to you next. All right. Well, my name is Essie Wynn. I'm a Lambda Award winner for gay romance. I just started really dipping my toes into mystery, I'd say, the last three years. I write cozy, but I also write psychic mysteries. Um, generally speaking, most of my protagonists are one amateur and a cop, but sometimes, sometimes it's, um, no, mostly it's that <laughs> because I have to have a way for them to find out the information and <laughs> having a cop boyfriend, you know, is very helpful. So that's me. Awesome. And Frank, uh, I'm Frank Anthony Polito and, uh, my new book is called renovated to death. It's also a cozy mystery. 
I am also a Lambda award-winning author of Gay Romance, um, which has been sort of my thing up until now. Uh, and most of my books are actually about teenagers and young adults. So this book is the first book I've written where they are adults. Uh, it features a couple, so there's still romance. Um, one of the guys is a writer. One of the guys is an actor. Funny, I'm a writer. My partner is an actor. Um, <laughs> I believe write what you know. It's just easier. Uh, and like Michael said, the cozy, um, you know, no violence, no real sex. I do have some flirtation the way there is among uh, gay men. And I did read one review that um, said, said something about I think they use the word blue. Um, I think they were slightly offended by flirting. So, you know, you can't please everyone. But wow. <laughs> I do like to put the romance in. Hello. Um, sexual innuendo, you know, but that's that's yeah. how uh, we operate. So long as there's no sex on page, why can't you have flirting and romance? You know, that's how I yeah. see it. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I abhor violence and I don't even like to have people uh, use four letter words because uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm a prude, I guess. <laughs> I think, you know, romance is such a natural subplot to a mystery. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a mystery by its nature is, is fairly heavy duty and you like to, to swing back and forth you know, and kind of relieve some of the tension some of the time. Mm -hmm. And romance in the very broadest sense, I think, you know, is, is just a natural topic to turn to. I mean, even if it's not romance, it's just the personal life of, yeah. of the protagonist, you know, some sort of development going on in that person's character. And, you know, yeah. it may or may not be strictly romantic, but I, I, I've often referred when I talk about my own writing, I often refer to the surface plot, which is the whodunit, and the, uh, the, the romance plot, which is everything else, you know, but it, it's not necessarily romance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my mysteries have a lot of romance in them. <laughs> you came from that. Yeah. yeah, I came from that. So I'd say it's half-half, but I make sure the mysteries are very complicated and complex, and that's what I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I always go back to this quote from uh, Moulin Rouge, I think it was, where he says, um, Ewan McGregor says, love is everything. And mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, uh, it's the driving force or the lack of love for, you know, mm -hmm. people. Yeah, um, that too, yeah. Yeah. Each of you write cozies and two of you mentioned not liking violence. Is that what kind of led you into the more cozy genre instead of I guess what you might call the more hard-boiled mystery? Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I grew up with, you know, Agatha Christie, who didn't, um, and, you know, and uh, Jessica Fletcher and all that. And I mean, th those are all very much within the cozy realm. To me, that's mm -hmm. a mystery. Um, I, you know, I, I know we're going to talk you know, at some point about the difference between mysteries and thrillers and so on, you know. And I mean, I, I, I feel that the, you know, traditional classic whodunit is, is just, those are the kind of stories I want to write. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I actually, um, I won't say I was dragged into the cozy world. That's not the right word, but uh, it's my first and I never really intended to write one, but I 
hadn't written a book in almost 10 years and I got a call from my editor and he said, we're looking for a gay, cozy mystery and we think you'd be good at writing it. Do you want to take a stab? So uh, I was unemployed. It was the start of a pandemic. I had nothing else to do. I said, sure. <laughs> Perfect. Why not? But I also grew up with... Uh, uh, I grew up with Encyclopedia Brown and um, the Hardy Boys, and uh, you know, so I was always a fan of the mystery whodunit kind of thing. Yeah. I just never thought I would be able to, you know, weave all that together and yeah. and, and come up with something that would be like those. Yeah, but you did. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was it was fun to do so, um, as much as it hurt my brain and <laughs> you know made me want to pull my hair out and, and all that uh it is fun it's fun it's fun to yeah. read and it's fun to write and right. i think that's you know whereas some of the other mystery type things you like to be scared but it mm -hmm. might not be it might not be fun but it, it's a different kind of fun yeah definitely yeah and we are going to talk about definitions this is where we hit that point michael that, that you alluded to where are the boundaries between mystery, suspense, thriller, and then, you know, we've talked even a little bit about the boundaries between cozy mystery and the, you know, hard-boiled kind of mystery. Where does all that kind of fall down? And I, I'll start with Michael, because he's definitely the veteran here amongst us for having mm -hmm. worked in this genre the longest. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it seems when I first started writing these that, you know, that every, mysteries and thrillers and uh, suspense, they, they were all kind of lumped under the umbrella of mystery, um, like Mystery Scene Magazine and all that. You know, they, they, it covers the gamut, but people kind of use the term mystery in a very general way. Um, and then I, I think that's kind of evolved over the years that I've been working at it. And now it seems to be crime fiction, you know, is, is, is sort of the umbrella for all of that. Um, but I, I think, I think a classic mystery, a murder mystery, a whodunit is essentially a puzzle and readers who like reading mysteries, like, you know, working along with the protagonist to see who figures out the puzzle first. Mm -hmm. And there are certain conventions that we all abide by, like playing fair with the reader. You know, you don't yank murderer out of the closet in the last okay. chapter i mean it, it has to have been there all along and the uh the, you know it, it it should be constructed in such a way that any uh intelligent and attentive reader might figure it out you know the mm -hmm. the, the clues need to be there you can yeah. certainly disguise them that's the goal um but i mean to my way of thinking that's that's what a murder mystery is uh you know thrillers and suspense novels uh, get into like a whole different territory where, you know, I, I think I would define both of those as, as being defined by this urgency. Um, and in most cases, it involves the prevention of something awful happening. There's yeah, this ticking yeah. clock, there's a bomb that's going to go off, whatever. And I mean, while while any conventional murder mystery plot certainly wants to have a, a sense of urgency and forward movement, you know, it, it's, it, it doesn't work the way a, a thriller does where it's, mm -hmm. you know, save the world. Um, yeah. I, I think, 
I don't think there is a stock answer or definition as to you know where those where those boundaries leave off between between and among each other, but uh, I, we all have a sense of it. Yeah. Well, a mystery doesn't even need a murder. An actual mystery doesn't even need a crime, you know, <laughs> which is different. Right. But I feel like, and I could be wrong, but because I'm new, the cozy usually is murder. Like I read one and there was literally no murder. And I, by the time I was done, I was like, I felt ripped off, you know, Cheated. there was, there was a mystery, but yeah. no one ever died. And I thought, well, I guess it's a cozy mystery. It's not a cozy murder mystery right exactly um, yeah yeah um and i've also seen like when i was doing research for this and i know we're going to talk about research but i remember i watched a lot of murder she wrote of course but i also watched an old show that i like called heart to heart and in that one right away we saw someone get killed and we knew who got killed and then the whole show was about them finding it out mm -hmm. so i was i already knew it was still fun to watch them do their sleuthing and everything, but I thought, yeah, it kind of takes the fun out of it because we already know what happened. Yeah, but That's Nancy Drew didn't have Nancy Drew didn't have a bunch of murders in. Them. <laughs> true, true, and they yeah. were they were certainly mysteries. So you know, that's a really interesting plotting or structure uh, issue. You know, having the murder up front or not, and I mean, I I don't know one of the one of the handbooks. I read way back when, you know, pointed out that there are, you know, there are two unimportant, uh, two very important, ultimately very important points that, you know, happen within a murder mystery, the discovery of the body and naming who done it. I mean, and so it's that discovery of the body that, you know, is, is kind of slippery. And, you know, some people want to start with a some writers want to start with a bang and put it right up front and capture your attention. And that is important. You know, if it, you, you want people to be caught by the first paragraph, if not the first page. And uh, so, a, you know, a murder on page one is, is pretty good. But the point is, you've wasted it you know, that, that early in the book, you know, and I, I've always preferred kind of a, what I would call a traditional three act structure. Um, you know, it, this, it isn't really a formula, it's just a structural principle that, that I have always followed, at least in my later writing, where, you know, the, the murder is the climax of Act One, which I define as Part One. But you, you, you can kill more than one person. Oh, sure. There are often complications yeah. and multiple murders mm -hmm. and so on. Yeah. And then, and then the, uh, you know, the, the whole middle part of the book, part two, that is by and large the investigation and the stakes get raised. And then there's, you know, another crisis at the end of part two. Perhaps it's a, a threat on the uh, protagonist's life or, you know, a near miss or something like that. And then part three is solving it. Um, but you know, that, that whole idea of putting the, the murder on page one, while very tempting, is, well, <laughs> when, you, when you sit down and you're facing 300 blank pages, uh, does kind of, you know, it, it kind of shoots the wad sort of early. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, Michael, because um, I, would agree. <laughs> I toyed with the same thing. And I have a dramatic writing background, screenplays and plays. Um, and I'm reading one now, a cozy, and the, it's not page one, but, you know, it's chapter one. And the whole time I'm reading the rest of the book, I don't know anything about this person who died. 
because they're uh, dead. Yeah. You know, and I've written mine to show this character and how mean and nasty and how much he deserves to die because he's just, you know, he's not a nice person. Mm-hmm. And I feel like even though it takes a while to get to his death, the reader, I hope, will be happy once he's dead because we see everything he's done and how he's wronged this person and how he's insulted this person. And that sets up the motivation for each person that he meets. Whereas if he's dead from the get-go, it's like, I don't even care. Yeah. I don't know. You can, though, make a victim a person. You can. I think the writer failed you there because he should have built the victim into someone who you felt either sorry for or were glad that they died. Yeah. Because... Well, what happens in that particular book is then people talk about him a lot and what he did and why they think this person may have killed him or that person. But I just feel like they're just doing all this talking and I would rather see than hear people talk. Hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, so show if, don't tell. So if, if the, if the, if the, the prince, the central murder, you know, if, if the, the, the one that kind of kicks the story into action, if, if that takes place, uh, you know, at the end, at or near the end of part one, for lack of a better word, that, you know, that gives you a few chapters to start out with where you're showing um, the normal rhythm of life, who this person is, who this person interacts with. And I mean, obviously, the, you know, the, the seasoned mystery reader realizes that they're, you know, up front being introduced to a cast of suspects, possible suspects. And that's fine. That's part of the game. But uh, um, I, I, I think another important, like, inflection point of storytelling in general, um, and uh, I forget the name of the guy who writes about this in terms of uh, screenwriting, the save the cat guy, if you've mm-hmm. ever heard of that, yeah. you know, and he says that at minute 24, talk about formulaic, he says, at minute 24 of the script, which is page 24, um, right. everything changes, you know, and, and that that's when, you know, life as you knew it, no longer is, and then everything changes. You're off on a mission. And of course, in a, in a murder mystery, it's finding out who had done it. And what changed it, of course, was finding a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love how you frame setting everybody up, because I think about disaster movies. Because you know you meet the entire cast of people who are about to go on this odyssey, and then about minute 24, the building catches on fire, the boat turns over, whatever it is, yes. and then you're kind of off and running. And it, it can be very much the same thing in body discovery, too. Now you've got your, your cast of characters. Somebody did this thing, and now it's the race to figure out who did it. And yeah. can you figure it out faster than the detective in the book? I guess I kill a lot of people in my books because <laughs> this is not a problem for me. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> the more murder, the better. Why not? Why only kill one when you could kill three? <laughs> I, I do I like those. I just had trouble. like, And when I set, wrote my outline for my first book, I had plans to have a couple. And then I just was like, oh, this is too difficult. Mm-hmm. One and done. <laughs> one and yeah. done. Yeah. Let, let the others live. But, you know... <laughs> In terms of, you know, heightening, <laughs> heightening the tension and, you know, and, and reaching, you know, the, the, like the, that second important crisis that kind of kicks you into the, 
let's solve it stage. I mean, another murder or an attempted murder or a close call is uh, is really, you know, such a handy device. Think about yeah. it. Yeah. I, I really love it when you think that's the killer, that's the killer, that's the killer, and then they get killed and you're like, oh, shoot. That's <laughs> I do enjoy that. I do enjoy that. Yeah. I'm curious for each of you what brought you into mystery. And and Frank, you've kind of answered this already, so I'm gonna come back to you to see if there's any more to this story. So your agent came to you and said, gay, cozy mystery. How long did you think about that, you know, before you're like, yeah, I think I can do that and, you know, flip the other writing that I've done into that genre? Well, I, you know, like I said, I, I, I read mysteries growing up and I always wanted to do one. So I didn't hesitate to do it but I, I did have to you know he sent me it was my editor and he sent me like a box of joanne fluke and you know um other mystery writers that are published by my publisher and i i read them and then i i i, I grew up not watching murder she wrote uh i was in college. I thought it was for old people. My grandmother loved it. <laughs> I was busy. I never watched. So it gave me an excuse to watch it. Uh, so I just was like, yeah, you know, you're always like, yeah, I can do that. But you know, there's a formula. So you have to watch it and you have to try to sort of figure it out. And um, <laughs> though I will say though, television and visual is different than a book. So just because you can watch a, you know, 44 minute TV show, it's not the same when once mm -hmm. you try. And I also think the thing about, I don't know if you guys find this too, but in a visual, a movie or a TV show, you can show people doing stuff, but in a book, oh, yeah, you need yeah. to know what they're thinking and what, mm -hmm. you know, there's so much more that goes into it. Yeah. And they get away with so much more in the visual <laughs> that they you don't have to explain. Like you can I see them rig, rig some device. Yeah. And, and it does, some, but if you're writing in a book, you have to explain how that device yeah. is rigged. I'm always saying that to my husband. <laughs> now I would have to write like 12 pages explaining that. Yeah. You know, and they can just show it in two seconds. And then I, I love exploring those differences between, you know, how stories are, are told in different mediums. Um, you, you have movies, television, film, whatever you want to call that, and you have novels. And you also have stage plays, which I, I think really kind of started it all. That was first. And uh, I, I was reading an analysis of that very topic once, and it really made sense. Let me think if I can put that back together. It, it mentioned that the story that is most efficiently told on film has to do with external conflict. And the story that is most efficiently and naturally told in a stage play is interpersonal conflict. And the kind of story that is most effectively or efficiently told in a novel is internal conflict. Yeah. I mean, obviously, right, you're, you're in people's thoughts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are m multiple, you know, many, many exceptions, you know, to that. It's not a rule. It's just a general observation. But I, I, I think novelists are constantly borrowing techniques from, you know, uh, playwrights and from screenwriters and vice versa, you know, to, it, as, as these all kind of become not one in the same, but uh, it, it becomes sort of a continuum. And uh, it's, it's, it's great to think about those things and talk about those differences. It, it's sort of 
informs what kind of story you can tell. I mean, it's just like when you when you start out to write a novel. Let's let's focus it back on that. I mean, I, I think I think any writer. I certainly know it's true of me. You know. By the time you write your first paragraph, you've made some big decisions. You know, it's probably in past tense. Uh, is it in first person or third? And uh, you know, the, the the first paragraph will reveal that. But those decisions uh, have a lot to do then with the way you're permitted to tell the story. I mean, mm -hmm. writing first person is great. I mean, readers love it. It's it's like you're telling a story, you're in someone's mind for, for the whole time. But then, as, as I'm sure you're well aware, you know, a first person protagonist has to be there for every scene of the book. Um, I have to say, though, I cheated. I always write first person. But in this book, I was writing along first person, and then I got to chapter six. And I was like, well, shoot, my guy's not there. So I just switched it to third person. But it's still his voice. It's <laughs> telling what happened when he wasn't there and unfortunately i had some people complain about it but you yeah. know what <laughs> are you going to do uh what are you going to do but you can't you can't you're exactly right if your narrator's not there or your main character's not there you miss so much well you you could do first person from another point of view like some people will do it from the side of the villain you know suddenly you're in the villain's head you know sure <laughs> yeah. yeah i've never yeah. done that but yeah I did mine, but I wasn't in that character's head. I was just showing what that character is doing mm. as if the narrator is telling it still. In yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't explain that. It may, people may not get it, but that's my justification for doing it. Because another thing, like I said about the telling, I didn't want to have my main character go and interview someone and have that person tell a long monologue about when they had the fight with that person that died so I wrote a chapter where we see the fight with the person who died the main character just wasn't there for it uh -huh. uh, I was trying to reinvent the genre and I don't know if that was <laughs> there, there is there is sort of an, an, an interesting alternate narrative voice that that I've explored a couple of times and it gets at what you're talking about Frank and I think it's it's referred to as the like very close third, where it's the, uh, the whole narration is in third person. And, and the, uh, the primary character feels like a first person narrator, except that uh, he refers to that person as he. And, you're, and he's the only person whose thoughts the narrator ever tells you. So then occasionally, if you need to slip in a scene where it's just not possible for that, that character, character to be present, um, you just stay in the third person. You do not get into anyone's thoughts. Um, it's, I, I think that's called a cinematic viewpoint where it's just like you know, a movie camera. You, you see and hear only what a, you know, a, a sound camera would see and hear but no thoughts, no internal monologue, anything like that. And I think it's enough to cue the reader, you know, that this is a little different, but it's not this abrupt change of, uh, say, first person to third. Um, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, I, I somehow hijacked the conversation and I didn't let you no, that was interesting. say that how always... you got into mystery writing. The, the POV thing is always pretty fascinating to me, this different takes on and, and different little 
ways to even, you know, do, use first person. Um, mm-hmm. To go back to how everybody got into mystery, SC, you've been in this like, you know, three, four years. What brought mm-hmm. you over from, <laughs> well, for the mystery part, oh, okay. what brought you from gay romance <laughs> to wanting to do mysteries, both, you know, psychic mysteries and I guess what we might call, you know, contemporary mysteries without the psychic ang- angle? Yeah. Um, well, I love mystery. I grew up watching mystery, reading mystery. I love Dick Francis, Mary Stewart, you know, all sorts of Agatha Christie, all the basics. And uh, I always had some suspense in my, not always, but a lot of the time in my gay romance stories. I was just kind of dabbling in it. <laughs> but then I was like, you know what? you can do this, you know, just do it. You, you, you can always figure out every single mystery you ever watch, you know, or read. I can almost always figure them out. So it's like, just, just do what you would love to do. And so I jumped in, I have 12 mysteries now. So I've been going full force on this, but I'm also not done with gay romance alone. You know, I love writing just gay romance as well, but I do, I just get bored easily and I like to jump around, but, um, that's what got me into it, probably. That's very cool. And then, Michael, for you, what got you started going down the mystery path? Well, you know, I didn't choose mysteries. The mysteries chose me. It's a little like Frank's story. Um, my first book, which was published 29 years ago, was not a mystery. It was a slim little literary paperback. And it was, it was published by a small gay press in San Diego. And I mean, it never did anything, you know, in terms of sales or, you know, uh, reviews, but it got me over that hump of being unpublished. And so uh, I started working on a second novel, a bigger novel, and uh, I still kind of fancied it as being literature. And, but it had definite elements of mystery to it. And, uh, I finally got lucky in that I landed an agent with a reputable New York agency. And he said, you know what, you know, you've, since you've, you've already said that this has elements of mystery to it, why don't we just try to market it as a mystery? And I know someone who's, who's in the market, um, for gay mysteries. This was in, this was in the, uh, the late nineties, mid to late, mid to late nineties. And, uh, uh, Kensington Books had not published a gay title yet. And John Sconamilio, who's now like the big guy there, uh, wanted a gay mystery series. John is and, my editor who wanted a gay. Well, movie. there you go. You know, that and, explains it. Good old John. <laughs> and so Mitchell, my agent, who knew John, you know, after, you know, after I had signed on with Mitchell, you know, he got back to me, I think, 10 days later and said, I've got a three book contract for you. And uh, so now you're going to learn to write mysteries. <laughs> and so I worked with John on, you know, uh, uh, sort of rethinking that the manuscript that was in hand, it became Flight Dreams, which was the first Mark Manning mystery and the first gay title Kensington published. Um, and then it was interesting because, you know, it was, you know, billed as being the start of a series, I had to write another. And so, you know, I thought about it and thought about it, really struggled with it and thought, okay, I can do this. And I came up with this huge, thick book. 
and send it, send, send in the manuscript. And, you know, it was like, that's not going to do it at all. And John, oh, no. kind of, John kind of read me the riot act and said, we will have a body by chapter five or page 100, <laughs> whichever comes first, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> we, we will, we will bury the exposition and only, you know, dole it out in little bits, uh, you know, bite-sized chunks as needed by the reader to understand the current context of the story and so on and so on. He kind of spelled it out for me and it was like, oh, gee, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and that, you know, and at that, from that point forward, you know, the, the die was cast. I was, I was writing gay murder mysteries and, uh, you know, proper whodunits. <laughs> That's awesome. And I love that you and Frank share John between you <laughs> as part of your history. That's really cool. I'm curious for each of you, kind of what is the funnest part as you're writing the mystery? Is it stringing the clues? Is it killing the person? <laughs> what is it? SC, we'll come to you to start that one off. Uh, well, naturally, killing off people is fun. And I, so, I sometimes take people who I hate in real life and I kind of write them in and maybe knock them off or just make fun of them. And uh, I also like laying out the red herrings and trying to trick the reader into thinking they know who the person is. And of course, they're wrong. But, you know, I like keeping them guessing. I think that's fun. I love that part when I'm reading and it's like, oh, I fell for the red herring. Darn it. <laughs> <laughs> But then I also like it too when I don't get it figured out, but I can mm, yeah. track back and go, oh, well, of course that's who that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Frank, how about for you? Your first, you got your first mystery under your belt now. What was the, what was the funnest part? Well, I think with all my books, this is, I think my fifth book. The fun for me is I, you know, always base the character on me. Uh, and the other characters are people that I know. And the places are people, pl places that I know or where I live, but it, I take, you know, three people and combine them into one. And, uh, you know, for me, it's fun to like, what part of this person can I take? What part of this person? And it's even more fun when people read it and they're like, oh, I know who that is, or I know who that is, or why did you say that about me? And I'm like, that wasn't you. Um, but I also, in my second book that I'm finishing now, I, my, my uh, victim is based on someone that I did not <laughs> like at all. And this is sort of my way of getting my revenge yep. on that person. Part of me feels like, why, do, why am I giving him um, the time of day for it? Because it's but fun. <laughs> it feels good. It feels good when he dies. Um, because I abhor violence and I would never, you know, wish someone ill will and to the extent I've gone. But... It is nice uh, to, you know, make up a world and be the god who gets to decide everything <laughs> that goes into it. Exactly. You two have definitely proven the adage of, you know, be careful what you do around, <laughs> yeah. to, around a writer or to a writer because you may end up as a dead body in the book somewhere. <laughs> Better in the book than for real. Mm -hmm. Right. Michael, how about for you? What's the, what's the fun part? I enjoy writing the first draft, the actual writing of it. Um, I also enjoy the plotting of it and working out of the details. And I'm an outliner. I don't know if we're mm. getting into that or not. Yes. I mean, uh, that that's all part of it. And I, you know, I, I love 
editing and I like rewriting and, and all that. But it but the the real creative process I think is is in the first draft. I mean putting the words on paper because I am an outliner. One you know I, I don't I don't write sentence one until I've got the whole story, you know, uh, in in synopsis form and in my head. Wow. Um, so when I when it's time to write, it's really a uh, when it's time to draft, it's it's a very intensive period, and I do it every day. Um, usually spend three or four hours on it. That's all I can. That's all I can do in a day because because I I find writing to be physically exhausting as as well as emotionally. Yes. And uh, but to to see the story actually shape take shape on the page, and to be you know finessing the narrative and just working the words on the page. I love that. Um, <laughs> and it, that, that's really, that, that's the part I enjoy most, um, you know, just seeing, seeing that happen, watch that, watching that happen day after day. It's great. Yeah. yeah. I don't outline when I write gay romance, but when I do mystery, I definitely outline. You have to have to outline. I don't do a super, super detailed one like you yeah. and things change constantly you know uh -huh. but i do do an outline absolutely you have to i think looking at the challenges and i'll, I'll start this back with you michael okay what do you find to be the challenges when you're working on the mysteries the the main challenge for me the hardest part and because it's such an unknown is the inspiration um the what's it about um waiting for that kind of aha moment when you find that germ of an idea that convinces you it's worth the time and effort mm. to develop it into a novel. And I mean, I find those moments precious. Uh, <laughs> they can't be planned or forced. And for me, uh, that embodies the, the truly magical aspect of creating something out of nothing. Mm. But you know, you, you can't practice for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You just have to wait for it and hope that it happens. So that is the uh, that's the most challenging by far. To pull on that just a little bit, see, I'm curious with you because you write in these you know both romance and in mystery. Is it easier to come up with the inspiration for one over the other? Um, for me, I try to keep it really balanced. I don't want it to be too much of either. And I think the challenge for me is just that mystery can get very dry if you're just like following the clues and, you know, like you, to keep it entertaining for the reader and interweaving the romance without boring the mystery readers and boring the romance readers, you know, trying to keep it evenly balanced to where they're getting both and um, just basically trying to make the mystery entertaining, not just dry, you know, mm -hmm. that's challenging for me. I think uh, the challenge for me actually writing, and I think everything I've ever written, I've done this. I have to know what day, maybe not what year, but I need to know like what month and day this scene is happening on and what month and day this next scene is happening on. And specifically in the mystery, you know, like I write my outline, but literally a chapter one and I put a parenthesis with what that date is. And then the next one, because I have to, I have to know, hmm. like, I literally have to know what's going on. Uh, 
and and it realistically, and I'm very much about uh, continuity and keeping track of that. You know, I started trying to like have a little sheet. I don't, um, I don't know what they call it. Um, I can't think of it right. You know, where you literally write like how so-and-so knows so-and-so and how long they've known each other and what they look like and whatever, because you can't, you'll change things and then yeah. you forget you changed it. And then like, yeah. I had this thing in book two that I just wrote that I swore happened in book one. And then I checked book <laughs> one and it, it may have been there at one point, but it got deleted and it's not there anymore. <laughs> and so I had, you know, cause you have an editor and you have a copy editor and you have a proofreader, mm -hmm. but you have to trust yourself oh, yeah, and you yeah. know your story better than anyone else. Oh, and yeah. if there's a major mistake, it's all on you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's when it hurts my brain um, <laughs> to keep track of all, all that, you know, like the, my cover copy says that the bathroom is pink painted. And I'm like, I know I said it's white. And then I just looked last night and I saw the word pink. And then I realized the main character's bathroom is pink, but uh, the yeah. murder house, it's white. So why did the cop, you know? Yeah, you can't and have you freak him freak out. Yeah, you can't have him alert allergic to wine, but then in the next book he opens a winery. <laughs> I, mean, I had a guy I swore he was going to be vegan and then the next thing I know he was eating um a steak or something. <laughs> he was eating no, he was going to be I don't know, gluten-free and he was eating toast, I don't know. So I just you know, you got it cuz the reader the reader will, the, uh, the reader will um you know call you out. That's why in oh, my yeah. new book, I've made it a fictitious, fictitious town. Every other book I've written has been in either the town I grew up in or adjacent. Mm -hmm. This one, I fictionalized it because I wanted an antique store. And I knew there's no antique store in my town. And if I said <laughs> there was, someone would, you know. You'll still get called out even for yeah. fictional towns. Someone People it, they'll be like, oh, you can't do that, you know, from that direction in that fictional town. <laughs> right. That doesn't um, Okay. Well, I, yeah. I think you could. Yeah. Let's talk about research a little bit, because I imagine for mysteries, there can be a lot. You've got police procedure, how they might mm -hmm. deal with the crime scene. You've got, you know, just how, you know, how a crime scene may play itself out, how somebody died. What does research look like for you in the books that you've written? And Frank, we'll, we'll come and start with you on this one. Well, I just realized as you're asking me that, I haven't really said anything about what my book is about. Um, <laughs> Renovated to Death, it's about a gay couple who host a uh, home improvement TV, uh, home renovation show on a network that is much like HGTV, but not. And uh, so I... Face this because my partner and I moved into this 1924 historic house that we've been renovating. So I didn't have to do research really in that aspect, but like I wanted to write about this house that they go into that has an all original 1920s bathroom. Well, mine doesn't. So I had to go online and see like mm -hmm. what was in an all original 1920s bathroom. And I tried to find pictures because why rack your brain trying to imagine what it looks like if you can yeah. actually see what it looks like? Yeah. Um, so I did that. And then I do have a friend who from high school who is a police officer. So, you know, I would message her and I, I really wanted to know, like, if this guy got caught for doing this, you know, mm -hmm. what would his sentence be? You know, is this illegal? Yeah. Uh, I didn't. Luckily, in the cozy, we don't have to get too detailed about the murder. So I didn't have to know, like, 
you know, what does a dead body look like or those kind of things. Um, but I, so I, I mostly just did the research, you know, for visual inspiration and ways to uh, describe what I see and um, my friend who's the cop. You know, I love the idea. I hear about writers who like, they'll sit down and they'll interview people. And I was like, if I had that yeah. luxury, well, we were also yeah. in a global pandemic, but it would well, be yeah. nice if you could like have mm -hmm. coffee date with a real cop and they could tell you the ins and out of this. But I also find like, if it doesn't pertain to what I'm writing, you know, yeah. I don't need it. Uh, <laughs> and also like my, I write in the first person, he may not know. I don't know. So he may not know. And that's okay. <laughs> because if I don't know it, he doesn't know it. Why, why do I need to know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. How about for you, Michael? How, what does your research look like? And then I would also ask, how's it changed over the years? Because in your first books, of course, that was all pre-internet. So your, yeah. your actual research had to happen in some other way. Uh, that's uh, a very astute observation. <laughs> my, my, my first novels, you know, were written in longhand on a legal pad and then transcribed at night on a typewriter <laughs> and, and revising the novel meant typing it over. I mean, it was just, you know, so uh, then along came personal computers when the first when the first IBM, I think it was, I think it was the IBM PC 101. I bought it. <laughs> you know? And you know, boy, did that change things. It was still a few years before the internet came along. Um, if I was, you know, my research prior to the internet basically involved fact checking. And for that, I would, you know, get on the phone and call the local research librarian, you know, with a list of questions, you know, just to get facts straight. Um, it, it's always, of course, when writing a mystery, when you're dealing, you know, with medicine and police and weapons and all that, I mean, you, you, you've got to, you've got to straighten that out. And um, like Frank, you know, I, I turned to, you know, several close friends who are kind of experts in those fields. I mean, there's a doctor I bounce questions off. There's a criminal lawyer. I know. I mean, I don't pick their brains for stories. It's just when I've gotten to the point in my plotting where I'm not sure, you know, of, of you know what kind of footing I'm on, you know, then I'll 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 try to ask, you know, as as specific a question that I can in order to straighten it out. Um, <laughs> I think I think that's I think it's very important. Um, I don't obsess over research. Um, I, I research what I need to know to tell the story and what I need to, and what I need to know to tell the story with authority. And the, you know, the, the point of wanting to tell the story with authority is not to be thought of as smart or brilliant or all knowing. It's simply that I don't make mistakes, factual mistakes that readers will see and immediately be yanked out of the story and roll mm -hmm. their eyes, you know, and, yeah. you know, and they're removed from the page and this artificial reality of the fiction that you've been creating and trying to lure your reader into, you know, it suddenly just dissolves, you know, mm -hmm. if, you know, if, if you made a reference to the wrong kind of gun or whatever. And so, I mean, you, those just those kind of things have to be nailed down, whether whether it's stuff that interests you or not. And obviously, you know, like police procedure just does not interest me. But, you know, <laughs> I, it, but I need to have it at least in the background of of 
these cozies, you know, there has to be a friend or an associate, you know, who's actually the cop right. yeah. and, and reports how things are going and, and all that. And you've, you know, medicine, you know, forensics, that forensic medicine, that kind of thing. You, you've got to get that right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's, you know, actual, actual out and out facts are pretty easy to find on the internet, you know, considering yeah. your source. Um, but then if you want a more nuanced sort of interpretation of something you're doing, that's when I'll turn to friends who know the stuff. Um, but like I said, I don't obsess over it, but I, I know that we all have to get it right. Mm-hmm. How about for you, Essie? Well, I research before I start, during, you know, a lot of things come up throughout it. And also there's this great group on Facebook, uh, Cops and Writers. I don't mm. know if you've ever heard of it. You can ask any question. It's fantastic. They will tell you they're all a bunch of retired cops. They're detectives. It's lawyers. It's great. They have like all the information you would ever need. They don't make you feel stupid for asking questions, (laughs) which is nice. So yeah, it's really useful. It's better than the encyclopedia. After we're done here and sign up to that group. I'm checking it out. I wish it was sponsored. No. <laughs> and you know the people who the people I do choose to lean on for you know for for fact checking, they're not at all annoyed by it. They seem no. to really you know really yeah. love kind of playing a role in it. And then they always end up on the oh, acknowledgments okay. page. Right. They, they love that too. So yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's good. What would you say has been the most interesting kind of nugget of information that you've gotten out of your research? And SC will just come straight back to you for that one. <laughs> yeah, this one was hard for me. I was trying to think because I research a lot on I've written a ton of books and I was like, what's one thing I couldn't I know a lot more about poisons than my husband would like me to know. <laughs> but I mean, basically, I just I don't know. I've learned a lot of different things, but I'm not good at like recalling these things. Maybe you guys could take this answer this question. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting that SC brought brought up poisons because I mean <laughs> I, I think any cozy mystery writer occasionally resorts resorts to them, and I mean th- there's a wonderful series of how-to books that mm. I, I think Writers Digest has. You know, it's like yeah. uh, you know poisons for mystery writers and all that, and everything's cross-referenced, and you know yeah. it's it's a lot of good information, but. Um, I think, I think the novel that taught me most uh, it, regarding things I needed to research was uh, in my Mark Manning mystery titled Boy Toy, and it dealt with mushroom poisoning, which I know absolutely nothing about. And, and uh, uh, th- that did require a lot of digging and a lot of fact finding. And it's interesting, once, once you get into it, um, mm-hmm. you know, it almost starts to suggest directions to go with it. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I've never even especially cared for mushrooms, you know. So the idea of people going out in the woods and plucking these things off at the bottom of logs and then taking them home and eating them is, is sort of, you know, mind-boggling to me. <laughs> but it made uh, it made for some really good plot points, and I know a lot more about mushrooms than I would have before. <laughs> It's always dangerous to know the mystery writers because they can get you with all the research they do. Frank, what did you, what was a good nugget of research you got out of uh, out of renovated to death? Can't remember why exactly I was researching this because I don't think I ended up using it. But I did learn that rigor mortis is not permanent. I don't know why I ever thought it was, 
Um, you know, it basically only lasts for 24 to 84 hours, according to what I read. And so they use that to determine how long someone has been dead, you know, because like I went on a road trip the other day with my partner and we kept seeing all these poor, unfortunate dead animals alongside the road. Oh. And you, every once in a while, you'll see like the poor little raccoon on its side and its legs are, you can tell it's totally stiff. And then other times you'll see them and they just look like they're peacefully sleeping. So it makes sense that it doesn't last forever. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I always assumed it did. I don't know why. And then the other thing I did learn for my while researching my second book is that a Burberry cashmere wool scarf can cost <laughs> Fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars, <laughs> and I don't know who would ever spend that kind of money on a scarf. But oh, um, I did me. learn that. I did learn that. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> Even better if you turn it into the murder weapon. Well, yeah. died by said touché. expensive scarf. Touche, touche. But that would be easy. Be easy to find the uh, killer because who could afford that scarf? <laughs> That's exactly. true. That's true. Exactly. You would have a limited number of, of suspects yeah. <laughs> there. Let's talk a little bit about your latest books. And Michael, we'll start this with you. You've got Desert Getaway. Tell us a little bit about Dante and Jazz, what they mm -hmm. get up to in this book, and kind of where the series may go to. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's a little bit of backstory to uh, Desert Getaway. It, it started with Palm Springs Noir, uh, an anthology uh, published by Akashic Books uh, this past uh, July, a year ago, July. And uh, but I, I first got the the like an email out of the blue from the editor Barbara DeMarco Barrett asking if I was interested in in taking part in this because I live very near Palm Springs. And uh, that that was three years ago. And my my first reaction was, well, noir isn't really my thing. I haven't haven't written noir, but you know, at the same time, I thought it's just a short story. Try it. It might be fun. <laughs> and it was. I loved it. I, I came up with two main characters in the short story. The short story was titled VIP Check In, and. Uh, you know, it was very well received. And I mean, I just knew as soon as again, this goes back to my little speech about inspiration. You know, it's 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 as hard to be inspired to write a short story as it is to be inspired to write a novel. I mean, you, you have to you have to come yeah, up yeah. with the idea. And uh, as, as a novelist, I've always kind of thought that short stories are sort of, a, you know, like a, a waste of inspiration. <laughs> you only get 20 pages out of it when you could get 300. And well, I, you probably know where I'm going. I mean, I, I decided to develop that story uh, into a full-fledged novel. That is Desert Getaway here in my hands and back on the wall. And uh, it has this, in effect, the short story, the original short story is now chapter one of the book. There are two main characters. One is Dante O'Donnell. He's a white gay man, an ex-actor who is down on his luck and has taken work in Palm Springs as a sort of concierge for this vacation rental company. The other main character is Jazz Friendly, and she's a black straight woman uh, an ex-cop, also down on her luck, uh, trying to get a fresh start as a private investigator. Now, these two people are, at least on the surface, polar opposites, but the story forces them to work together. 
and uh, along the way they you know they're trying to solve a murder for mutual reason for they each have their reasons for wanting to solve this but along the way they they learn not only a measure of respect for each other but by the end they're friends and they make a pretty good team and so you know that that's uh, you know i'm writing installment number two right now and who knows how far it'll go but uh I love these guys, uh, Dante and Jazz, and uh, that's what I'm up to. <laughs> awesome. Now, Frank, you gave us a little hint on Renovated to Death, which kicks off domestic partners in crime. Tell us a little more about these two renovators and what they're going to be up to as the series kind of continues with whatever you can tease out for us. Uh, you know, basically, it's uh, this gay couple. Peter P.J. Penwell and his partner, John Paul J.P. Broadway. And Peter is a writer of young adult mystery novels. And J.P. is an actor who had some success on a former, on a now canceled cop drama called Brooklyn Beat. And they, they were living in New York. They met in New York. Um, PJ wrote this play for a gay play festival and JP was acting in the play and they met and they were together for about five years. And uh, they were realizing now that they're millennials and they're in their mid thirties and they realize, you know, New York is expensive and the TV show has dried up and um, the books aren't selling as well as they once were. And so maybe we should move back to Michigan where, uh, Peter is from and buy a house. They can get a house that's, you know, three times the size of their New York apartment for $200 a month less, buy a house, get a dog, fix it up. Um, so they do that. And JP has this friend who's a TV producer for a network called Home Design Television, HDTV. And she says, oh, I can pitch you guys to our network, to our, to our network to do this home renovation show. You're gonna buy this house, you're gonna fix it up anyway. So why don't we, you know, take advantage of the eye candy. And um, <laughs> so she, they get this show and it's called Domestic Partners. And so in this book, they finish season one, they finish their own house, they find a new house to renovate. Uh, there's an abandoned house down the, down the street where they live in Pleasant Woods. And it's currently owned by a pair of gay twin brothers whose parents died, the house has been sitting empty for 25 years. Um, they've decided time to let it go. And so the guys are gonna fix it up. Then lo and behold, one of the twin brothers is found dead at the bottom of the staircase. And of course the police rule it an accident as they always do. Uh, and going back to the, to the theme of love and romance, the man who dies, boyfriend comes and says, you guys, I can't believe this was an accident. He's the love of my life. I need to know really what happened. Can you please help me? And based on their own love for each other, they realize if this were to happen to, the, to them, of course they would want to know. And so begins the uh, search for the killer. The man who died happened to have a lot of ex-boyfriends <laughs> uh, and a lot of enemies. Perhaps he had some gay mafia connections. So. Perhaps. Um, perhaps. <laughs> he owns a bar that was newly renovated. Where did the $500,000 come from? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they move on to their uh, become 
pulled into the world of becoming amateur sleuths. Um, and they have to, you know, get, figure out what's going on because they can't renovate this house because there's like, you know, it's now a crime scene. So they want to <laughs> get season two of their show uh, filming and get back to their normal lives. I love your characters because you've got one who is the YA mystery writer and another who was a cop on a cop TV show. So you've both got them as like, I'm not a cop, but I played one on TV sort of. Right, right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, so, he, you know, he's like, uh, well, remember that episode that I filmed where we did blah, 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 blah. It's exactly like that. And that's what I think makes it fun because we see, when we see these kind of shows or we read these kind of books, it's always fun to have the amateur person who, how do they know, you know, how did the little old lady in Cabot Cove, well, she wrote mystery books, of course, yeah. she did a lot yeah. of research, and she knew a lot of cops. Yeah. Exactly. SC, now your latest, Kiss, Mary Kill. It's yes. the sixth book in the mm -hmm. Dr. Maxwell Thornton murder mystery series. Sorry. Tell us a little bit about Dr. Thornton, and then what's happening in the new book. Well, Dr. Thornton is a person who hates people. <laughs> Uh, he he had a patient die. He used to work in Los Angeles. He had a patient die and he was the kind of person who never failed. He just he just can't come to grips with the fact that he lost a patient. So he kind of ran away and he ends up in this little town in Texas called Rainy Dale. And he um, doesn't fit in very well because he's very abrasive. He just he's just very blunt. The people haven't had a doctor in a while and they're bothering him. And, you know, so he, he doesn't start off well at all. And as this, as the uh, series progresses, he gets involved romantically with the sheriff, of course, <laughs> and they fall mad in love, but they have their ups and downs. They have a lot of problems and every book ends on a cliffhanger. And this one, there's a doctor who comes to town, a homeopathic doctor who is super charming Everybody loves him. And of course, Dr. Thornton is feeling threatened and, and all this. And this guy pretends to be super friendly to Dr. Thornton, but he can tell that there's something beneath it all. And of course, it'll be revealed what it is eventually. But um, his Dr. Thornton's clinic burns down in one of the books. So he's looking for a new place right now. And he's trying to ingratiate himself with the people of Rainydale and try to do better and he um, so he goes to a wedding where the bride feels that she's seeing the dead wife of her future husband. So that's kind of the storyline. She's she's kind of being she thinks um, haunted by this dead ex-wife. And then the groom ends up dead at the wedding and he's not who he seemed. And, you know, yada, yada. <laughs> you know, it could happen, guys. <laughs> Nothing surprises me anymore on what happens in the real world. So, absolutely. yeah, really, <laughs> it's very tame. <laughs> no, it's fun though to write. I'm curious how you've seen the genre evolve. I mean, as writers in the genre, as readers in the genre, what you've seen happen, and you know, even what you expect to see. You know, as we're writing books, you know, that we wrote in the pandemic, and how we may write you know, now post, quote unquote, post pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and Michael, you know, I'll, I'll come back and start with you because you, you do have the history here also. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm not sure I can speak 
uh, to change in the mystery genre as a whole. But uh, when we talk about gay mysteries, I, I think there's clearly been an evolution. And to my way of thinking, it, it's very positive. Um, simply put, over the last 20 years, mainstream American culture has grown much more accustomed to encountering LGBT characters, not only in novels, but in the mass media. Um, the, it's as if the fact of our existence no longer comes across as shocking or daring, um, <laughs> which it certainly used to be. And for gay writers, uh, this does mean that our niche is less secure and exclusive than it once was. But uh, to my way of thinking, there's really no downside to that. It's, uh, it's liberating, and uh, I'm grateful for it. So you're kind of in the middle of the group. <laughs> What's your perception? Uh, that's funny, because I'm a middle child, so <laughs> it works out great. <laughs> I'm used to it. Uh, I think there's a lot more diversity. Definitely. Yeah. In gay mystery, for sure. There's a lot more lesbian, transgender, you know, uh, different races. I don't think it's just one thing anymore. I think it's definitely diversified, which I think is a very good thing. I agree. Um, you know, I, I haven't read a lot of cozies. I haven't recently read a lot of mysteries, but I have found since writing mine, like I remember when I started writing mine, I thought, I didn't realize, Michael, that you had written gay mystery for Kensington, but I I knew Kensington mysteries and I thought they were always, or the majority were all about, you know, for lack of a better, little old ladies. Uh, so <laughs> I thought, oh, well, what about a gay millennial couple? That must be new or, you know, at least some, some new thing. And then I started doing some research and I found out that there are more, um, they're calling them quosies now. Uh, <laughs> over on uh, Crime Reads, there was an article there, and the yeah, guy wrote that. about it. The quosie about the queer cozy, and so I think that's you know definitely new and diverse, and people are happy to see that. I also uh, read some of my early reviews, which I've stopped doing, and one of them said, "Why do you have to keep telling us that they're gay?" And uh -huh. I thought, well, I was a little whatever, but then I thought, oh they don't care like like michael said it's it's evolving yeah. and they don't care that they're gay so why do they need the reader need to be told that they're gay and i th thought well because that's just how you do it and if i don't tell you that them you that they're gay then you're going to assume that they're straight but i feel like the readers you know this is my first book that's been geared toward a, a, a wide audience not just a gay audience and I'm finding that I'm learning stuff from the non-gay audience who reads that they don't need to be spoon-fed and they they don't mm -hmm. need to, you know, um, like, I don't want to say, they don't care. Like Michael said, everyone Oops. knows gay people and we're not, we're not some, uh, yeah. some special, we're not, you know, what did they say? I don't know, mermaid or whatever. We're not, <laughs> we're not unicorn. We're not, you're, we're not unique. Um, they want us to be just like everyone else. Gay novels also used to almost always be coming out stories. Mm -hmm. And you don't 
really, I, I can't claim that I read everything. I, I don't know if it's a trend, but I just, you know, I, I assume there's much less of that now, you know, yeah. you know, a, a gay character, especially a, a central gay character in a story, you know, we assume he came out, you know, <laughs> at some point, but that's ancient history. And, uh, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, how, how are we functioning in the world as people? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, the, the anguish of, uh, of coming out, I mean, that, that's not, uh, I don't think that plays anywhere near the role in LGBT fiction that it used to. Yeah, I, I agree. Not, you know. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it depends on where you where you look for it, but you could certainly have whole novels where it's never discussed how they came out, when they came out. You know, there are still coming out stories that are still extremely relevant, right. but it's not every story has to tell that right. story. Well, there are still great. people. There are still people who can't come out, you know, right. depending on where they live, who they, who their family is, you know, it is still a thing, but it yeah. isn't like you're saying, it isn't every single gay story isn't about coming out. They, yeah. you guys can have real stories now. Yeah. It's hard to find conflict though. So It's hard to find conflict when you take away that thing we've relied on for so long as the, <laughs> you know, the, the issue. Mm. Yeah. But yeah. there's plenty of conflict in life. Don't you think just in general? <laughs> yeah. Of course, this Big Gay Fiction Fest is happening during Pride Month. And I would love to hear from each of you what Pride means to you, you know, here in 2022, and also how you kind of manifest Pride within your stories as well. And Frank, we'll start back with you on this one. Well, I will say uh, I ashamedly, shamefully, and I, I feel like I'm taking it for granted. The older I get, the longer uh, I've been out. I didn't come out until I was 27 years old, and that was a while ago. But I remember the first Pride Parade I went to when I wasn't out yet, and seeing everyone who was celebrating that thing. And I was actually there with my partner, and we had been together for a while at the time, but we were both actors living in New York, and it was that time where there were no gay actors who were out, and so we were both choosing our career over, you know, our relationship. And now that we're, we've been out, we have a pride flag that we, we and we just got it last yeah. year. It was like, yeah, we want a pride flag. We have a house now and we live in a very gay friendly neighborhood. I live on a street that has 12 houses and seven of them are owned by gay couples or individuals. Um, and for me, it's like being proud. It's pride, it's being proud. Um, and I, we need to remind the younger generation that they they didn't always have what, what they have now. And in putting it in the story, it's more about they're just gay. They're mm -hmm. not, it's not an issue. It's not, yeah. you know, something to be ashamed of, unless that happens to be the plot point. Um, so now it's just about writing about that's just part of their lives and lives and they're gay and they're happy and you know yeah. um they have every right to be and every reason to Absolutely. be and it's still a little bit easier said than done i think um but i'm trying to be the person that i'm taking actually my um 
inspiration from the younger people who've always had it. And like boys will just hold hands walking down the street or they'll kiss or, mm-hmm. you know, in public. And it's like, oh, that's something I would never dream of doing. And now I'm trying to get to the point where like my partner and I went to see a movie and it was, I like, we kind of like, got a little cuddly and it wasn't something we would have done years ago because uh, we always felt like, oh, they're watching us and mm-hmm. everyone, you know, we're going to get gay bashed. and. Yeah. I feel like we, thankfully, at least, you know, where I live, thankfully, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Michael, how about for you? Well, my comments on this are remarkably similar to Frank's. Um, all, virtually all of my novels have featured a gay man as a first person narrator. And, uh, but I've, I've moved that viewpoint character far beyond the issue of coming out or struggling to fit in. Um, the, these, these protagonists of mine now don't struggle with their gayness. They just happen to be gay. Mm-hmm. And they're generally well assimilated uh, into the surrounding mainstream culture. And that's not only a point of pride for me, but a point of strength and clarity. Um, and it, I think it, I think it also provides something of a, you know, of a model, not necessarily a role model, but just a, a modeling of life and a modeling of how to live to, uh, to gay readers who might still be struggling with that. But, uh, I don't, I don't preach about it anymore. I mean, it just, it is what it is. And, you know, Frank has already said this very well. So. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. ST, anything you want to add? Oh, no, just that I'd say mostly I, I do worry. I, I worry how um, fragile this moment is and how easily things can be taken away. You know, what's going on with the Supreme Court and everything. I worry about my rights i worry about lgbtq rights i worry about all the things that could change so quickly um just that's kind of what where i am when i when i think about things lately but i do also in my books i try to just show they're gay but that's not the point the point is that they're people enjoying their lives or you know solving a mystery or whatever it is they're doing it's not about them being gay like Frank was saying, I don't think you have to, you know, announce every few sentences, you know, <laughs> I'm gay. <laughs> We're gay. <laughs> well, you know, it's even not- the way I, even the way I was just thinking about it now, like, you know, like I have a, a gay couple that I introduce and I say, Miguel and Ricardo, a gay couple. No, I just say a couple. Right. The readers just need to know they're a couple. And because it's two men, they're gay. Figure, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, though, we had to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we don't have to say that anymore. We don't have to make excuses. We don't have to spoon feed. Um, you just say there were two women. They're walking up the street holding hands and she kissed her on the cheek. They're lesbians. We don't have to tell you that. We will get <laughs> yeah. it. Trust the readers. Yeah, I agree. As we get close to wrapping up here, I'm curious. Of course, our, our listeners should go pick up all of your books to dig into some mystery. <laughs> I'm curious who you would recommend in the gay mystery genre for our readers to pick up if you've got an author or two you think would be great to recommend. Uh, SC, who are, who are a favorite or two of yours? Well, I think it goes without saying Josh Lanyon. 
um, adore the Adrian English series. And she has more than just one series, though, that's very popular. I also love um, Harper Fox is fantastic. Nicole Kimberling. Um, there's there aren't actually so many that I love. I started to say there's a million of them, but <laughs> actually there aren't a million of them. Those three are three I really love. Fantastic. Michael? Ooh, I always hate doing this. <laughs> I mean, at one end of the mystery spectrum, well, this isn't gay. At one end of the mystery spectrum, there's Agatha Christie. And then somewhere near the other end is Michael Nava, just a, you know, an absolute mm -hmm. pro. Uh, and he happens to be a friend, and I, I'm happy to recommend his novels. But I, I, I enjoy reading both of those ends of the spectrum and everyone in between. And I, mm -hmm. I just really don't want to take it any farther. <laughs> Frank, any names you would drop? I know you said you, don't, you haven't read too many, but I know you did some reading as you were you know, preparing to write your own. Yeah, I haven't. And part of it is I don't like to read other writers because if they're better than me, they make me feel <laughs> inferior or I steal their stuff. Um, but one that I did come back to that I read a lot while I was researching in the beginning, uh, there's a writer by the name of Lee Hollis. Uh, he's actually it's actually a pseudonym for a guy that I another Kensington author named Rick Cop and his sister. They write together and her name escapes me. It's Holly. I think it's where they get Hollis. But I really enjoy Lee, um, Lee Hollis's. He has a series, uh, her name is Poppy Harmon, and she is like a older middle-aged um, Jessica Fletcher type woman. She lives in Palm Springs and the Desert Sands Mystery, I think they're called. And I really like his writing because he does that thing. I kind of, that's where I got it, where he does a hundred pages of all the setup and getting to know the characters and getting to know who the, ultimate victim becomes so that when that person dies, you either are, you know, you're happy that they're dead and then <laughs> you get to see all of the buildup of, oh, and why it might've been this person and why it might've been that person, why, why it might've been that person. Um, and then there's always um, Joanne Fluke. She's just a lot of fun with her many, many, um, you know, Yule log murder and mistletoe murder and, cream pie murder and key lime <laughs> tart murder and they're just they're just fun they are books my grandmother would read and that really makes me happy because she's gone and i miss her Aww. so as we're passing the halfway point of the year i'd love to know what's coming up next that readers could look for either at towards the end of 2022 or moving into 23. frank you mentioned a second book in your series is that going to be a 20 late 2022 or 23 or uh, it will be out exactly one year from now. Um, book two in the Domestic Partners in Crime series called Rehearsed to Death. And the basic plot is the guys are on hiatus from the TV show. Peter PJ has a play that's being produced at the local community theater starring JP, his partner. And it has a there is a really nasty diva director who just gets under their skin and he likes to wear a really long flowy Burberry cashmere scarf, cashmere <laughs> scarf that he flips around his neck and, and ever so dramatically and uh, a lot of people who are not fans of the guy either and he does end up you know 
dead. dead. It's a, it's a, <laughs> there's no mystery that someone's going to die. It's yeah. right on the cover copy. <laughs> so that book will be out um, next next June, uh, right in time for Pride next year. Fantastic. Essie, how about for you? Um, obviously, the Dr. Thornton that we just talked about, but also the third Cozy, uh, the Kip O'Connor Cozy series. That one's coming out at the end of, I think, June. And then I, I might write a gay romance, just standalone kind of thing, because I didn't used to write series, but I started writing a lot of series the last few years. But I'd like, I like to write standalones, too. That's how I started. And uh, I just think it keeps it fresh. You don't have to remember every single detail. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's coming for me. Perfect. And Michael? I'm working on the next Dante and Jazz mystery. Um, the first one, Desert Getaway, uh, was just recently published. So the second one in terms of being out there, you know, is probably a year away. I, I would say sometime early in 2023. Um, the working title is Desert Deadline. And <laughs> as that suggests, it's about an author, but a romance author. The queen, the queen of romance uh, has <laughs> rented a a, a fairly large uh, uh, guest house uh, in the Palm Springs area because she needs to hunker down and grind out the seventh and final installment of her very, very popular uh, romance series. And there's like, you know, a video deal tied to it and all that. Let's just say <laughs> things don't go as planned. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely something to look forward to into the into the end of this year and next year. Uh, Frank, Michael, and Essie, thank you so much. I have adored My this pleasure. conversation. Thank Very you for being fun. at this thank Big you. Gay Fiction Fest. Thanks for having me. <laughs> happy Pride, everyone. Yeah, happy Pride. Likewise. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at biggayfictionpodcast.com. The show notes page also has links to everything that we've talked about in this episode. And if you'd like to keep up to date with the show and recent releases in our genre, check out the Rainbow Romance Reader Report, the weekly dispatch that delivers the latest news right into your inbox every Friday. Go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com slash report for more info. Thanks again to Michael, Frank, and SC for talking about mysteries. I really love this conversation, but in particular, the discussion that went on about when the murder might be revealed, how many murders might end up in a story, and even how much romance and intimacy to include, and all that research that they do to ensure that the stories ring true. It was such good discussion. I just loved it. All right. I think that'll do it for now. Coming up on Monday in episode 388, it's the final episode of the Big Gay Fiction Fest as we present the Big Gay Fiction Book Club Selection. For the fest, we're going to be talking about Laquette's super sexy second chance bodyguard fake relationship romance under his protection. We both love this book so, so much and cannot wait to discuss it with you. On behalf of Jeff and myself, we want to thank you so much for listening. And we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kinds of stories we all love. The big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Production assistance by Tyson Greenan. Original theme music by Daryl Banner. 